Father, we uh, thank you for all the ways you bless us and provide for us and sustain us. And uh, we ask that you would give us wisdom and insight into the things that we're going to look into tonight, that you will uh, bless our time together, and that uh, you will uh, help us to, to have a better insight into the earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus and all that that means for us. And we thank you that we're able to get back in the swing of things this year with the study, and uh, we just pray for your blessing on, on our time and our fellowship together, and we ask all of that for Jesus' great namesake. Amen. All right, y'all, chapter 9. We're in chapter 9. Just, just a little bit of review. We're, we're in the, in the uh, still kind of in the first major section of Luke. If you look back to the big outline over on page, I think it's on page 9. If you'll turn back there, uh, page 8. On page 8, I've got the full outline of Luke Acts there. This study originally, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at Luke and Acts together because it was meant to be a continuous work, uh, the gospel leading into the book of Acts. And there I've got an outline for you that shows how Luke uh, organizes his material geographically. Uh, he begins with the, with the pre- preparation of Jesus' ministry. Uh, and then Jesus' ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles. That's the section we're in, Luke 4, 14 through 9, 50. And Jesus is preaching healing in Galilee of the Gentiles. And then in 951, he turns toward Jerusalem to head toward Jerusalem. And he goes through Samaria and then Judea. And finally, uh, winding up in Jerusalem, where we have the central aspects of uh, Luke's gospel, and also kind of the hinge point that gets us into the book of Acts, and that's the uh, betrayal, crucifixion, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, but particularly the ascension of Jesus. And that's why I've got that in the very middle of this mirrored order here uh, of the outline. So everything's moving toward the ascension of Jesus. That's the really central, uh, critical thing that takes place that, that changes everything. And we'll talk more about that when we get over there. But uh, from that point forward, then, the book of Acts just reverses this geographic order. You have the apostles as they begin in Jerusalem, and then they take uh, the gospel from Jerusalem, then to uh, Judea, Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth, back out to all the nations and so forth. And so as we've seen earlier, this uh, the gospel in Acts is meant to show how Jesus has come not just to be Savior and King of Israel, but for all the families of the earth, all the nations. And so tonight, uh, we're in that second major section where Jesus is preaching and healing, and he's also starting to turn his authority over to his uh, disciples, his key disciples. And that's kind of where we're picking up. So there in chapter 9, if you look there in chapter 9, I'm going to, this first little part here, I'm just going to do some summary because this is stuff that we're all a little bit more familiar with. And so uh, in chapter 9, verse 1 there, uh, you have Jesus. He calls together the 12, and these are the 12 that he had already set apart earlier, back in chapter 5, I think it was, 4 or 5, where it was 6. He had already set them apart, and now he's going to send them out to preach. It says he called the 12 together, gave them power and authority over demons and to cure diseases, And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. The main point is that Jesus is giving his authority and power over to the twelve. 
to go out and preach. And so he, in a sense, is multiplying his ministry, right? He's got more men now to actually preach and heal. The main thing to pick up is that now uh, the 12 are starting to take on Jesus' ministry. And that's going to be important for the book of Acts because when he ascends into heaven, like we were talking about, he turns over his entire ministry to his disciples. So here, this is some of the early uh, training stages uh, about, uh, um, that Jesus has given to the twelve and so forth. Uh, then that next little episode there, verses 7 through 9, you get Herod, who uh, has been paying attention to what's happening, and he has a question. Uh, verse 7, it says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that, it, all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, uh, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. The main part of that little episode is the question that's being raised. Who is Jesus? Right? Is he Elijah? Is he one of the prophets of old? Who is he? Because there's this rumor going around that uh, Jesus is John, come back from the dead. But clearly that's not who it is. And so Herod wants to know who he is. We're going to see Herod show up again later. But the important part, and I think the reason that John includes that, is because Jesus, here in just a second, he's going to ask the disciples, who do you say I am? Right? The crowds are saying all these different things. Elijah, John the Baptist, whatever. But who do you think I am? So it's important that, that Luke kind of introduces these ideas there in that episode because that's the very thing Jesus is going to ask uh, the disciples about here in just a second. The next episode, y'all all know this, uh, verses 10 through 14, you have the feeding of the 5,000. This is one of those miracles where Jesus shows his power and authority. Now, uh, verse 18, this is, this is the critical turning point. This is where uh, things are going to shift and, and really lead us into the next major section of the gospel, and that's the confession of Peter here. Verse 18, it says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, that is Jesus was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ of God, or you are the Messiah of God, is what he means there. So here, Peter makes this great confession. And Luke's version of this is much shorter than, say, Matthew's version. If you go look at this same episode in Matthew, uh, he spells it out in a little bit more detail. But for Luke, the most important thing uh, that happens here is simply uh, Peter making this outward profession, you're the Messiah. Of God, and you know the the Peter had already, I think the lights had already started to come on for these boys earlier, as they see the miracles and they see Jesus teach, and so forth. In fact, you know when uh, Jesus calls Peter, it's when they're out and they take in the great haul of fish. You know they're out been out fishing all night, and Jesus says, "No, let's go back and go fishing." And they have so many fish that come in, both boats start to sink, and at that point. Uh, Peter says, you know, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Uh, so right there, you know, lights are starting to go on for Peter that Jesus is somebody different, clearly. Uh, but here, the, the confession of Peter is critical because he, he now has an understanding of who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, right? He's not Elijah. 
He's not John the Baptist. He's not one of the prophets of old. He is the Messiah. He's the very one that we've been expecting for all these years. And so uh, Peter's confession is critical, uh, a big turning point in the ministry of Jesus. And you can see that in the aftermath. Look at verses 21 and 22. Uh, as, as Luke is unfolding the story for us, uh, notice what Jesus says immediately after this. Verse 21. And so he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. You're right, Peter, but don't tell anybody. And then he says this, verse 22. And then he also said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So this is one of the first mentions that you have of his rejection of him being killed, but then also raised on the third day. First time he, he mentions this. So again, we've, we're at a shifting point in the ministry. He hasn't emphasized this at all to the disciples. And as you all know, nobody is completely prepared for what's going to happen in those latter days of Jesus' ministry. And I think part of the reason, you know, the question always comes up, why does he tell them not to tell anybody? You know, this is I was I was telling the noon class today, if you look at uh, if you look at the things that Jesus teach and you look at the way these have been arranged in the Gospels and and whatnot, so much of this is completely counterintuitive. Uh, when, When you hear him say what he says, you think, wait a minute, why is he saying that in that context? I had a I was teaching Sunday school class this Sunday and we were talking about issues of truth. What is truth? And and. What's our ultimate source for truth? And one of the guys in class raised the question, which is a critical question, how do I know that what I believe is true? Right? How do I know if I say something is true, and I say, you know, in this case, that the Scriptures are true, how do I know they're true? And uh, I told him, well, you come back next week. We're going to talk about that next week. But one of the things I was going to talk about is the fact that as, as I read the Gospels, if, if I were going to be starting a new religion, right, if I'm going to start a new religion and try to get everybody to come to it and, you know, whatever that implies, everything Jesus does seems to work against what we would normally do, right? Uh, yeah, I'm the one, but don't go tell anybody, right? And then look at the very next thing that he says in verse 23. Because this is, this is where it gets really, this is where he starts to turn up the heat a little bit. In fact, in these next several chapters, he's going to start to emphasize the cost of what it means to follow him, right? Of what it means to be a disciple. And so verse 23, he says, uh, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, before we read too much into that, I want you to think about the fact that, right, he's saying that to these disciples for the first time. They don't know what that cross is ultimately going to mean, right? Jesus has not been crucified, resurrected, ascended yet, right? So when they, when they hear Jesus say, you've got to take up your cross and follow me daily, the first image they would have in their mind are the roads leading into Jerusalem and in all the major, major cities where there would be men hanging on the crosses, right, being tortured slowly to death uh, day by day. Some of the, sometimes it would take three or four days for somebody to die that was nailed to a cross. And so these disciples, the first time they hear it, they don't think of, 
you know, the cross the way we do, right? Now, as a religious symbol and Jesus' death and resurrection, everything that goes into it, all they're thinking of, wait a minute, that's, that, that's the means of a torturous, terrible death for insurrectionists and thieves and murderers, and uh, right? So for them, as Jesus says this, you know, I'm sure they get the idea, wait a minute, what, what is he talking about? Take up your cross. You mean I got to die? Is that, is that what you're talking about? I got to go put myself to death? And that's exactly what he's talking about. Look at what he says in verse 24. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Um, so in order to follow Jesus, you got to die. You got to take on a life of dying. It's essentially what he's saying. Now, if I were starting a religion... That's, that's not the place I would start with it, right? You're not going to have people beating down the front door to come in and say, hey, I want to <laughs> come in and uh, do this life of I got to die to myself day by day. And notice Jesus makes that daily. You got to pick it up daily. Pick up the cross daily and follow him, right? So, so for me, one of the things that uh, speaks to these things being valid and true is nobody in their right mind would make this stuff up if you wanted people to flock to this movement, right? Robert. The question is, do you think that maybe nobody, even, they didn't have a clue either? Well, you know, it's clear that even um, one, one of my favorite statements, this is odd for me to say it's one of my favorites, but in Matthew 28, after Jesus has been raised from the dead and he calls the 11, right? Judas has gone and hung himself. And he says, hey, go meet me on the mountain. And it's that, you know, it's where he's going to say, uh, all, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now go make disciples of all nations. It says that when the 11 went up on the mountain and they saw him there, they all worshiped, but some of them were still doubting. It's interesting you bring that question up because in the, uh, we're about to get to the episode of the transfiguration. And in that, Peter's going to make a statement. And Luke says specifically that he didn't know what he was talking about when he said that. So, so, so Peter, he, he's kind of the spokesman for the, for the apostles, but he often speaks without knowing what he's, fully knowing what he's talking about, but also he lets his mouth run ahead of his, his, you know, his mind a little bit too. Uh, Jesus, and, and I will say uh, in a significant thing, if you go look, look at the episode in Matthew, Jesus immediately says to Peter, uh, Simon Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... So I think Peter making the statement, he probably has some basic knowledge, but I don't think the, the significance of it has really set in. Picture. That's right, or the whole picture of it. Yeah, ab- absolutely, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, I, I, uh, every year I'm alive, I always feel like I have a new understanding of the Lord that's like, wow, how could I have not known this before now? You know, this is process of growth that all of us go through, you know, and, 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 and I love it that we get to, you know, we see that with Peter and these other men that Jesus handpicked. Yeah. Anybody else? I meant to ask her, any questions? Let me get Steve and I'll come around Laura over there. 12, Jesus was off doing something, yeah. you know, by himself for a while. Yes. You know, what, what were they talking about? Not a... Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. He's really the one? Yeah, right. Uh, do you think he's going to be the king and then what yeah. king? Right. Want to be, then you start arguing about who's the greatest. Yes. Yeah. If you read between the lines, you know, you can imagine. <laughs> to me, I can imagine the conversations that yes. probably happened, you know, about who he is. Absolutely. Something that kind of highlights that 
if you look again at um, verses 23 through 27, let me read that whole section there again. Uh, so he starts with, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, now that's the critical statement, for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself or his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some who are standing here right now who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Right. So here Jesus is going to teach this um, begins this teaching of what it means to follow him, dying to self, right, denying self. And then uh, if you turn over just a page or so probably in your Bible, if you look uh, over at the end of chapter 9, Jesus foretells his death. Uh, well, first of all, uh, first of all, you have the transfiguration. We're about to talk about that, verses 28 through 36. Then you get Jesus who cast the spirit out of an unclean, uh, an unclean spirit out of a boy because his disciples haven't been able to do that. Right? They haven't been able to cast the Spirit out. So Jesus comes and does it, and he says, You faithless, twisted generation, how long am I going to put up with y'all? Verse 41. Then Jesus foretells his death again. Right? Son of man is about to be delivered over. And it says that they did not, verse 45, this is it, they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this. Right? So it goes back to what Robert was touching on. They, they clearly, the lights have not come on from them, and the Lord is keeping it from them as well. But then in the midst of that, here comes the argument. Uh, which one is greater? <laughs> Who's greatest? Which of the disciples is greatest, right? They're clearly not picking up on what Jesus is teaching, right? And then we, we even know uh, that, that they don't get it. Jesus is going to teach about uh, love, right? He, in the Sermon on the Plain, he's already taught about uh, you must love your enemies, and do good to those who hate you, right? He's already taught that. He's going to amplify that again. But then at the very end of his ministry, right, the, the, the mob comes to arrest Jesus. And you all remember what Peter does? Peter pulls out his sword and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Now, let me ask you a question. Why did he cut off his ear? He missed, Right? He missed. Do you think Peter, do you think, yeah, do you think Peter is intending? Just, oh, well, let me just nip his ear off. He has pulled out his sword and he's about to cleave that dude's head in two, right? And probably through the intervention of the Holy Spirit, it just gets the ear. Now, let me ask you something. Is that Peter loving his enemies? <laughs> they don't get it, right? Even until the very end, they don't get it. And I love that because really that's where we are, right? We're in this process of growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, Laura, you, you had a question or a, a kind of continuation of what y'all were yeah. talking about. Um, I was trying to imagine myself being a disciple, and Jesus, and I was listening to Jesus say, "And I'm going to be killed, but three days later I'll come back to life." Yeah. What? What? Are yeah. Yes. Yeah. They have no precedent for that, right? There, there's nothing that has come before that could even prepare them for it. Now, you and I, we go back and we read the Old Testament and we can see those prophecies and we can see how they would be fulfilled. But not, you know, if we were in the middle of all this being fulfilled, 
we would not have put that together in, in the way that it actually happened. Anybody else, any questions or comments on that? Uh, any of that, I just wanted to go back. I never fully answered the thing where it says he strictly charged and commanded them not to tell anybody. Uh, I wanted to lay out some of that because I think the reasons he tells them that, number one is because Jesus is not, is not going to be the Messiah that everybody's expecting, right? Everything that he's about to fulfill, he's going to do it in a way that nobody has clearly foreseen. And so what, he, what he's going to do, I think, over the next several chapters is convince them that he is the Messiah, right? They need to see more of his work and his teaching so that the people will look at the works. And, and I'll talk about that more in the context of the sending out of the 72 because uh, what, what Jesus wants the people to do is to hear his preaching, hear his teaching, see the works that he does, and then come to the conclusion he has to be the Messiah instead of people being forced into that or having that forced upon them, right? So, so part of it is um, uh, they're not ready for the type of Messiah Jesus is going to be. And then, uh, and then, you know, the other part of that is you've got all this chatter, all these people about, well, he's this, he's that. He's, so there's a lot of expectation. And so Jesus is going to make sure that, that the people uh, hear and see what they need to hear and see. And he just and so he's keeping that under wraps for now. That, that's the best I can make out of that. Um, and in fact, it, it won't, won't be until a little bit later that it becomes more pronounced that people are, you know, like Peter are coming to the conclusion that he is the Messiah. Now, uh, the, in verse 27, after, uh, by the way, I'm going to talk more about what he says about the cross and following him because he's going to take that initial statement and amplify that later when we get on over uh, into some of the, you know, chapters 15, 16, 17. So I'm going to wait and we're going to tie all that together whenever we get over there. Uh, he says some really important things there, but we're, we're going to wait to where we can develop that all together in, in one place. Uh, in verse 27, though, he, he makes this statement. He says, uh, now I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then the very next episode we have is, you know, what we traditionally call the transfiguration passage. So um, it makes sense to me that what Jesus is talking about, uh, that those who are going to see the kingdom are Peter, James, and John, uh, the ones who are there for the transfiguration in this next episode here. So verse 28, you notice, look at how Luke ties it together. Now about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who had appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Uh, let me make a note before I forget about it. There in verse 31 where my translation has who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure that he was about to accomplish. Does anybody else have anything different in your Bible there? Exodus, yeah. In Greek, it's, uh, it's literally uh, spoke of his exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And think about all the images that that brings up, right? Exodus, when we hear that word. Uh, we'll say more about that in a minute. Verse 32, it says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. So here, this is uh, Peter, James, and John seeing the glory of Jesus. Uh, if I could say it this way, his kingdom glory. This is, this is Jesus 
glorified like he will be when he returns. And so they're getting this vision of Jesus fully glorified here, along with Elijah and Moses. Uh, And they're asleep, right? (laughs) The disciples, uh, at several of the most critical parts of Jesus' ministry, the disciples are asleep or sleepy, right? Uh, Here at the Garden of Gethsemane. um, Really, really interesting. Verse 33 uh, now, as the men were parting from him, Jesus, I'm sorry, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Right? So here's, again, Peter's talking and he doesn't fully comprehend what he's talking about. Um, let me read the end of this and then, we'll, and then we'll come back and make some comments on it. Verse 34, and as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Or uh, a a textual variant says, My beloved one. Uh, Listen to him. Verse 36, And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. I don't know about you, but if, if I had seen this, I'm going down and telling everybody, man, y'all are not going to believe what's going on here. But they're probably, you know, they're probably in shell shock after this because Jesus has just told them, don't tell anybody I'm the Messiah. And they're probably thinking, man, well, if they don't, he doesn't want us talking about that, then we definitely are not going to talk about what we just saw up on the mountain. And, and, and y'all, y'all understand what I'm saying when I say this, I think. But this is probably also the equivalent of seeing Bigfoot or a UFO. It's really exciting, but you're not going to tell anybody because they're going to think you lost your mind, right? And so that, that may be part of what's going on here with the disciples as well. Uh, but, uh, and, and also, I read this, every time I read this, th- this is the first thing I think of. Notice when Peter addresses Jesus, he says, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. How does Peter know that's Moses and Elijah? I, that, to me, that is the great question out of this whole episode, and it really doesn't matter, but I'm mystified by that. Like, how does he know? How does he know that's Moses and Elijah, you know? Um, and, 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 and maybe it, it could be, well, maybe. <laughs> on their, on their, on their uh, halo, like in the icons, so you know, it's got Moses glowing above. <laughs> yeah, it could be, I don't know. You know, and, and, uh, you know, and the other thing is the disciples wake up when Moses and Elijah are leaving, right? So that, that implies that they didn't hear everything that they were talking about. I don't know. But that just always fascinates me. How does Peter know that's Moses and Elijah? So that, I, I'm just going to go with the name tag or the halo thing. I, you know, it's the best explanation I've heard so far. Um, but Moses and Elijah. Moses, of course, um, we're in your notes there on page 21. I meant to say that a minute ago. We're in the notes there on page 21. Uh, L263, right toward the top of the page, Jesus is transfigured and speaks with Moses and Elijah. Uh, Moses, of course, is the great representative of the law, the instruction, right? Moses is, and and really, I I think there may be more to it in the sense of Moses is, is often referred to as a prophet in the Old Testament. He is the, he is a prophet like no other's that came after him. Number one, he is specifically referred to as a prophet, but also 
uh, in, uh, you know, as the Lord has given the law, one of the things that sets Moses apart that was not like any other prophet after him is that Moses spoke face to face with the Lord, right? He, he, was, he stood in the presence of God. And in fact, at one point, you remember in the giving, when the Lord was giving the instructions on Mount Sinai, Moses said, Lord, let me see you. Uh, and the Lord says, no, you can't look directly at me, but I'll stick you in a hole over here in the side of the rock and I'll p- go by and put my hand over you and you'll just get to see my glory, the, the light, the illumination that's coming off of me as I pass by. And you remember as Moses comes down, he's glowing, right? And the people are freaked out. Well, Moses, cover your face. You're, I don't know what's going on here. So here Moses, uh, Moses is the one through whom the Lord gives the Torah, the law, the instruction, uh, but he's really the first great prophet in the Old Testament. And uh, Elijah is the first of the great, what, we, what scholars typically call the classical prophets, right? Uh, in between Moses and Elijah, you have people that, that prop up that are uh, prophetic in nature right here and there. But Elijah begins the cycle where the Lord has raised up a king and he will send a prophet to speak to the king. And that's the first real role that, Moses, uh, that Elijah fills in that. So, uh, so Moses is not just a great lawgiver, he's also a great prophet. And Elijah, too, is the first of the uh, great prophets. Elijah is unique, and if you all remember, he was taken directly into heaven. Elijah never died. Uh, the Lord came and got him in a chariot when he turned his ministry over to his successor, Elisha, which is wild uh, to think about that. So the, these are unique figures. In, in the Old Testament, and a lot of people have seen the significance there that uh, Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about his exodus, about his uh, ascension, right, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And we're not told what, what they talk about. We're, we're not given any detail other than that they were talking together with Jesus here. Uh, I can't wait to talk to Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And, hey, tell us what y'all were talking about. I want to know. I want to know what's going on. Verse 33, when Peter speaks, he says, uh, Master, it's good for us that is here. Let, let us make three tents. Probably what, uh, what Peter is uh, giving reference to here is y'all are, I'm sure y'all are aware of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths in the Old Testament. And that was a, a, a feast, a festival that Israel, that the Lord gave to Israel to commemorate their, um, their being redeemed out of Egypt through the Exodus. Right, And as they came out of Egypt and they were headed back to the promised land, you remember they were wandering around in tents and tabernacles and booths. They were uh, out there. And even the Lord, the Lord was in the tabernacle, right? the tent. He wasn't in the temple yet. And so that, that great celebration um, celebrated their release from bondage in Egypt. But then later, uh, you can write this down, Zechariah 14 the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, not Zechariah, um, John's father that we've seen in Luke already, but the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament, uh, one of the minor prophets in chapter 13, he has a really interesting statement. I'm sorry, chapter 14. Uh, he has a really interesting statement. Zechariah, I don't know if y'all have read that or studied that book before. Zechariah is kind of like the Old Testament version of the book of Revelation. But it is crazy. I mean, it. Some if y'all, man, Zechariah's visions are oh, some of them are out there, wild stuff that takes place. Uh, but in chapter fourteen, 
This is, this is at the end of the book. This is the last book. And chapter 14 is all about the coming uh, of the day of the Lord. 14.1 says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. And I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Wow, that's not a... That's not a beautiful image, is it? So the Lord talks, first of all, about this time of judgment. But then he talks about that after that that time of great judgment that comes, uh, he's going to bring salvation uh, to the people. He's going to raise up his king over all the earth. Verse 9, the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name is one. Then, uh, on down through there, I'm not going to go through all of this. But the important thing is in verse 16, Zechariah 14, 16, as he talks about this salvation that comes after the great uh, terrible day of the Lord, uh, he says this, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. So here, Zechariah talks about this time, uh, and for us, th- this would be during the coming of the kingdom, uh, as best I can figure out, that when the kingdom comes, right, the new creation comes, all the nations that exist during that time, they're going to come up to Jerusalem year by year to celebrate the Feast of Booths. You follow me? So from that passage, uh, by the time you get to Jesus in the first century, the Jews had already started to associate the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles, with not just uh, Israel's redemption from Egypt, but Israel's redemption in the future at the kingdom. And so that festival became a time that uh, looked back to the Exodus, but also looked forward to the coming of the kingdom. And so when Peter sees Jesus glorified here, right, along with Elijah, Elijah and Moses, he thinks the kingdom has come. And so thinking that, he says, oh, man, this is great. Should we then build three tents for you and Moses and Elijah, right? That's what he, and that's why he doesn't understand what's going on here, right? It, no, this is just a little foretaste of the kingdom. This is not the full reality of the kingdom. And so uh, Peter speaks, and, he, and what he speaks is good, but he doesn't have the full context. He, he doesn't know. And then the really important thing happens, verse 34, as he was saying these things, A cloud came over and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. This is probably not like a mist rising up on the mountain. This is more like a thunderstorm coming up. Uh, In the Old Testament, and particularly uh, in these scenes of judgment or when the Lord shows up, uh, if you think about Mount Sinai when the Lord came, He came down in a great thunderstorm with lightning and flashes and earthquakes and fire and all this. So this, this is probably something like a storm coming up on the on the mountain. Uh, when Jesus returns, he's going to return uh, in the clouds with glory. And a lot of the popular painting, you know, has him in a, you know, fluffy white cloud. No, 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 it's him coming back in like a thunderstorm, right? Terrifying and terrible. And so that's probably, and, and right, and that explains why they're afraid as they enter the cloud, right? This is not like a fog rolling up. This, this is something that really gets their attention. And as it rolls up, the Lord God speaks, Father God speaks. Verse 5, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. 
Uh, there, there's, a, there's a couple of textual variants in some of the other manuscripts here. Uh, in fact, if you go read this same episode in Matthew, Matthew probably has the full statement. Matthew says that the voice said, uh, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Uh, Luke probably just is including a shorter version of that here because he wants to emphasize that last statement, listen to him. Uh, and, so, uh, and so here, there are, there are a couple of different textual variants. They all, you know, they're all kind of swirling around the same set of ideas. But Luke probably shortens it uh, to emphasize that, that idea of listening to Jesus, paying attention to him. And, and the reason I know that's the case is we have several episodes that are coming after this that are going to show that the disciples are not listening to Jesus. <laughs> right? They're not paying attention to him. They're not careful to listen to what he's saying. And so that's you know, a really important part of the story and one that's going to be amplified as we go forward. And then, like we said, verse 36, uh, when, they, when all that was over, they kept silent and they didn't say anything about what they had seen. Any, any questions or comments on, on any of that right there? We move on to the next section here. All right, we're we're about right at time. Uh, it gives us plenty of time just to finish up. Uh, notice the episodes that come right after this. Uh, I've already mentioned them. First of all, uh, Jesus comes down. It's the next day. They'd come down from the mountain. A great crowd came out to meet him. Verse thirty-eight. Behold, a man from the crowd cried, "Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child." And behold, a spirit seizes him. And he suddenly cries out, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. Verse 40, now here's the important statement. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now these same disciples that have done some of these things earlier, right? But here they can't. Uh, So verse 41, what does Jesus say? Jesus said to the man, or said to the people, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God, right? This is, if you remember, we just read uh, back in chapter 9, very beginning of chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus calls the twelve together. And he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. All right? So here, these disciples, they're not trusting what Jesus has taught them. They're unable to cast this demon out. Right? They're not being careful to listen to Jesus. And Jesus chides them for it. But then uh, you get this next statement. Uh, While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. I think what he's, right, already what he's starting to emphasize to them and trying to get their minds around is, Boys, I'm about to leave here. And when I leave, I'm entrusting everything to y'all. Right? that's why you got to be very careful to do everything I tell you to do, right? So he tells them it again. I'm about to be delivered over into the hands of men. And, and also, he's, he's probably getting them ready. Here's Jesus. He's casting out demons. He's healing, right? They probably think that he is going to go to Jerusalem. The people are going to accept him. He's going to become king. 
Uh, he's going to elevate Israel to be the great nation among all nations, and then he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And Jesus says, no, we're going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to be betrayed. Right? They don't, they don't have any mental makeup for that yet, right? Because if he's the Messiah, if he's the great king, that's to be expected, why, why are the people going to turn against him? Why is he going to be betrayed? Why is he going to be handed over? Why, why will he die? Right? They just they can't get their minds around it. And even worse, or to explain part of it, verse 45, they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So here, uh, just like John mentions and a couple of the other gospel writers, uh, the Lord keeps them from understanding fully what all this means at this point. But yet Jesus teaches it to them. Um, and I, I think part of it is, uh, although Luke doesn't emphasize this as much, if you remember, if you read through John, uh, Jesus, when he's teaching on the Holy Spirit, he specifically says that when I give you the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to bring to remembrance everything that I've taught you. And so it's really not going to be until the beginning of the book of Acts that you know the disciples, the, especially the twelve, all this is going to solidify into place. And, and, and even a little bit at the end of Luke, they're going to be like, oh, didn't we? Rem- I remember when he taught us that, and we didn't understand what was going on. But now it's all coming together in a clear picture. Verse 46, now an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. <laughs> this is after Jesus has just taught about deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Uh, whoever uh, would save his life has to lose it. Whoever is going to lose his life for my sake will save it. Right, And here they are getting in an argument about who's the greatest. Uh, verse 47, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Now, I'm going to come back and we're going to tie this together. Because again, Jesus is going to take that little kernel He's going to amplify it in the verses to come. And one of the things that Jesus is going to teach them is, is that it's not the wise, it's not the great, it's not the powerful that are going to be saved and enter the kingdom. It's the people who are like kids, children, helpless, unwise, hopeless, without the Lord, right? And so he's going to amplify that for them. But then even more so, he's going to amplify this idea about he who is least among you all is the one who will be great, right? Uh, and in fact, he's going to take it further and say, you know, whoever is the servant of all, that's who's the greatest in the kingdom. So we'll, we'll come back and tie those together. And then this last thing before the turning point, verse 49. But then John said to him, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. <laughs> All right? Boy, now that's a powerful statement, right? Now think about that for a minute. Here, John pops up. Uh, if you remember, John is one of the hotheads. John and his brother, uh, Jesus calls them the sons of thunder, right? Uh, if I could translate that into modern English, they're, they're the hell raisers. They're always picking fights, getting in trouble, right? Uh, John, kind of a hothead. Uh, he says, hey, look, there's this other guy over there. He is casting out demons in your name. And by the way, what's just happened? They just had an episode where they can't cast out demons, right? So this guy is doing 
what Jesus has told the disciples to do, but they're not able to do it. And what does John want to do? He wants to shut them down. He's like, John's, you know, like, hey, I think that dude's Presbyterian over there, and I know we're a bunch of non-denominational house church kind of people. Shouldn't we go over there and shut him down, right? Jesus is like, no, because whoever is not uh, against you is for you. Uh, now, we're going we're, we're gonna to trace that through a little bit later, but that's a really important statement. In other words, Jesus is saying, uh, where people are doing things in my name, don't try to throw water on that. And, and again, notice that statement. You need to circle that statement, in my name. He had just said earlier, whoever loses his life for my name's sake or for my sake will save it. And then here, this other person is casting out demons in Jesus' name. We're going to see that phrase show up several more times now. Uh, things done in Jesus' name. And then, uh, I'll just mention this and we'll stop right here. Verse 51, this is the turning point in the gospel. Verse 51. In fact, there really should be a new chapter division here because uh, this, this starts a whole new section. It says, uh, 51, it says, Now when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So first part of Luke He's been in Galilee of the Gentiles doing all the works that we've been reading about so far. But now this is the turning point where he turns toward Jerusalem. And the next journey is going to take us from Galilee down into Jerusalem. And as he goes, he's going to go through Samaria and Judea. And he's going to send out other disciples to proclaim the gospel. And he is going to give his central teaching on uh, what it means to be a disciple. What it means to follow him as he heads toward Jerusalem and rejection and death and resurrection and ascension and all those things that are going to happen. So the, the, the really heart of the gospel that focuses on discipleship is now going to come in, in chapters, uh, the mid part of chapter 9 all the way over to chapter 19. And so right there, now that's where we'll pick up next week. Father, we uh, thank you for all the ways you bless us and provide for us and sustain us and um, Tonight, I also pray for those who are out sick. I know we got a couple out sick, uh, a couple of others traveling. Pray that you would keep them safe, uh, watch over them, bless them, and return them safely um, in the days ahead. And we uh, also just, uh, we pray that in everything we do here together, uh, not just in this class, but in all the classes, that we can all uh, get a better understanding of Jesus, who he is, uh, both in his ministry uh, on earth, but also even his present ministry as he works in and through us to accomplish the mission that he has for us. And so we want to grow in his grace and knowledge and uh, be approved as people who uh, cling to him and place our hope in him without shame. And uh, we ask all this and give you all praise for his great namesake. Amen.